0: Welcome to the Undisciplined Podcast. This is your host, Nico Beitendach, and today I'm speaking to Professor Simon Springer from the University of Newcastle in Australia. He's a professor of geography, but geography with a difference. We're talking today about anarchist geography. We talk about a lot of topics concerning space and politics. Uh, Professor Springer has a lot of very interesting ideas and takes. He's also the author of numerous books, almost too many to mention. So we spend a lot of time speaking about that at the end of the podcast. It's a really good episode. I hope you enjoy it. Next up, Professor Simon Springer. Just to start off with, do you mind just telling me a little bit about your personal or academic background? You're a professor of geography now at the University of Newcastle in Australia. Yeah,
1: Yeah, I've been here for, I guess, about nine months now, Um, coming from the University of Victoria in Canada, which is where I'm originally from. I grew up in BC. Um, I did my undergraduate at the University of Northern British Columbia in geography, Uh, I did my MA at Queen's University in Ontario, also in geography, and then I went back to BC for my PhD, uh, again in geography at the University of British Columbia. After that, um, my first job was at the National University of Singapore, and I was only there for about a year and a half. Took a job at the University of Otago on the South Island of New Zealand. Was there for about a year and a half and then uh, moved to back to Canada to Victoria at the University of Victoria again for, uh, I guess it was almost seven years. And then when this position came open, it was, you know, thinking, I guess I could spend the rest of my life in in BC, but life's meant to be an adventure. So we took the adventurous path and decided to come here.
0: Oh, that's really cool. So you you started studying geography from undergraduate level.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't, it wasn't, um, you know, coming out of high school, it wasn't something that I was all that interested in. I mean, I, I think I took geography 12 when I was in high school and it was just, I wasn't, mm-hmm. you know, I wasn't a good high school student at all. I wasn't interested. I At that yeah. time, all I wanted to do was play in a metal band and was kind of my parents that wanted me to go to university and I didn't at first. I actually, well, I went, I think for a year and then I dropped out for about six years and played in a band and then, you know, didn't feel like yeah. living in a, a tour van with three other guys for the rest of my life. So I decided to go back to school at that point. And I took a, a variety of classes like uh, some psychology and history courses. And I came across a social geography course that sounded interesting and um, took that and it was taught from a feminist perspective. And it really opened my eyes and showed me that, you know, not only could academia be something um, that's done with a social justice imperative behind it, but that geography was a, you know, a key kind of conduit to that kind of academic work and research. And what I was getting out of history and, and psychology at the time, it wasn't you know, nearly as interesting because it didn't seem as connected to real-world events as geography did. So, yeah, it was uh, feminist geography was really my first you know, sort of love uh, for geography as a discipline. It opened my eyes and uh, set me on this path.
0: Yeah, so you, you say you had high school... Uh, geography 12 so i i had even less i think i only took it up to the ninth grade sorry so that's that's explaining my ignorance but you know for me the image of geography is like still learning capitals and learning weather patterns and learning agricultural patterns so how yeah. at at a serious <laughs> academic level what what is geography generally more about because like you said, there are feminist perspectives to it or more political angles that to that?
1: Yeah, certainly at the high school level, that's kind of the presentation of geography. It's, you know, memorizing capital cities and uh, learning a little bit about landscapes, I suppose, and, um, you know, geological processes, if you will. And it's kind of not, um, not to say that it's entirely disconnected from academic geography once you get beyond the high school level but certainly at that point I didn't see the connection to the kind of geography that I do today which is it, it's basically in a nutshell um, sociology or anthropology though you know social sciences in general but really foregrounding the Idea of space and place and relationality, connections between different sites, and looking at, you know, how culture and politics and economics are all embedded within particular places. And then again, the kind of, you know, political relationships between places. And when I, you know, when I say places, it, it doesn't just mean cities or countries, but also, you know, we can think, we can think in, at different scales, right? We can think right from the global to uh, the idea of the body being a particular site or a particular place. So um, yeah, geographers are working right across the whole spectrum uh, of what's possible. And it's really, I mean, what I love about geography, it's, is that it's the undisciplined discipline, right? That you can essentially do pretty much anything within the context of mm-hmm. contemporary geography. Um, so long as you're applying that geographical lens, which means looking, you know, at a bare bones level, looking at forms of organization and forms of connection or even, you know, forms of disconnection. Why are, you know, why are certain exclusions taking place? Why are people, uh, being pushed out of certain sites or not being accepted or welcomed into communities, that kind of thing
0: yeah so uh that's you you say that geography generally it's very broad and it allows for a lot of undisciplined approaches, so more specifically on your work, you call yourself an anarchist geographer,
1: for, yeah,
0: for you at least, what does that- p- specifically mean then
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess what's in a word, right? What's in a label? I I don't know. To some people, I'm an anarchist geographer. To some people, you know, I'm a Cambodia expert, whatever expert means, right? I always sort of uh, reject that label because I'm no expert. I'm somebody who does research in Cambodia, but Cambodians themselves are obviously the expert. But, you know, these are just the different kind of labels that are thrown around. And, Um, in some ways I want to push back against them and say, I'm, I'm not anything, you know, even, even the name Simon Springer, you know, what is that? Am I, am I, we have, we have this idea in academia, that academia, that we put our names on our books and our papers, and therefore we are the authors and creators of that knowledge. When in fact, you know, nothing I've ever written hasn't been, uh, built upon the work of other people right and this is the the nature of relationality is that it's all fundamentally connected so yeah i mean not to be too esoteric about what's in a word but um you know anarchism means different things to different people and for me you know where the anarchist geography kind of label comes from is it's the lens in which i view the world right and influenced by uh, exploring the work of other anarchist geographers in the past and in the present. Um, you know, my particular influence was Peter Kropotkin and that was and the the work that they were doing, uh, you know, essentially a century ago um, in a different space, in a different context, a different time, but trying to explore the relevance of those ideas in the contemporary moment because I, you know, the overarching larger processes, I think, fundamentally remain the same, if not exacerbated, from the the time that they were working in. So, yeah, I mean, it's really a, a matter of just questioning um, hierarchical relations and placing an emphasis on um, an ethic of care and and mutual aid and solidarity and connectivity, rather than you know the the primary way of organizing in our world today, which is along neoliberal lines of every person for themselves and not really giving a, a a crap about those around you. Right. So it's fundamentally flipping it on its head, even though, um, you know, most people, assume anarchism to mean particular things like chaos and violence and mayhem and that sort of thing and it's not about that at all it's about cooperation and voluntary association and mutual aid Mm. so going to the you know the theoretical and actual uh practical core of anarchism if you will it's um you know the mainstream media and and governments alike want to Mm smear anarchism's good name, if you will, and and suggest it's associated with all the problems of the world, I mean, increasingly we see a lot of governments, um, particularly in light of movements like uh, Antifa trying to say, you know, it's the anarchists who are responsible for everything, but it's, you know, no, it's the anarchists who are wanting to bring us back together and say, you know, we should all be taking care of each other rather than fighting with each other and and discriminating against certain segments of any given population.
0: Yeah, so you mentioned Antifa, and just in my lifetime, of course, like maybe talking about the 90s, I became aware of black blocks and that kind of thing. Yeah. And then the, the history in between, let's say, back to the kind of classic anarchist thinkers, and like you mentioned, Elie Zerikli, who I found through your work and started reading up about, do you think that there's a resurgence or a revitalization in anarchist, serious anarchist thought, or is it just that I've been unaware of the constant history, the constant beat?
1: Yeah, I mean, it. In, are you asking in terms of geography or academia more broadly?
0: Yeah, well, I'm definitely interested in in both, to be honest.
1: Yeah. Okay. I think. Yeah. I think there's a resurgence across both, right? I think that um, the world has come to a point. Contemporary politics are at a stage where we once again need anarchism desperately, and. You know, within geography, that's been picked up, but it's also been picked up across the social sciences, sciences where you have big names like Judith Butler, for example, mm-hmm. embracing a certain anarchist current. I don't know that she would define herself as an anarchist, but she certainly plays with anarchist theory in particular ways, right? So within academic circles, I mean, academia is such a big world. What is the credibility of anarchism? Uh, on a scale compared to feminism or Marxism, it's nowhere near um, as accepted or widespread, obviously. But um, yeah, perhaps this is my own view too, because I look for those currents within academia who's working with anarchist theory, but I've certainly noticed a lot more. And I think, you know, definitely in the time that I've been doing it, it seems like every year there's more and more uh, prospective grad students who are wanting to work with anarchist theory and finding different re- uh, relevant ways to apply that theory to the kind of work that they're wanting to do. And within geography, I mean, honestly, it's something that, you know, there's a network of us, folks like um, Ophelia Verón and Richard J. White and Anthony Entz and Federico Ferretti and Marcelo Lopez de Souza. I mean, there's a number of us in different countries all over the world who are really trying to push this agenda within geography as something that's, you know, uh, vitally important to our discipline, right? Because uh, I think for a long time. I mean, I was trained as a political geographer and basically what political geography has been up to this point. If we mm-hmm. set aside Reclus and Kropotkin, who were largely forgotten about for a long, long time up, uh, you know, by geographers, they were kind of picked up in the, in the early 1970s very briefly and then dropped very quickly. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, I just think that their work is, critically important to what's going on today and as, aside from those folks the bulk of political geography has been focused on a state-centric perspective right so anything is yeah. sort of fair critique within the realm of of political geography but there's this uh, set of blinders that people have been working with where you know you make a critique of the state moderately, but never to the point of saying, OK, the state is fundamentally one of the key problems. Right. And it's going back to Kropotkin in particular, who emphasized that you cannot separate the state from capitalism, that those are two interlocking systems. Um, and it's really, you know, wanting to push back mm. against uh, mm. Marxist arguments, for example, which are, continuing to work within wanting to work within the parameters of the state as though it can be an emancipatory agent of change when i just don't get why they continue to want to spin their wheels because the historical record shows us repeatedly that it can't be right that it that every time there's been an attempt to use the mechanism mechanism of the state for some kind of revolutionary or emancipatory change it's backfired in dramatic ways. And how I come to this then is, you know, before I discovered any anarchist thinkers, I was doing, you know, my, my background is doing research in the context of Cambodia, and particularly on uh, the phenomenon of violence in that country. And so I was looking at, uh, you know, everybody knows Cambodia for the Khmer Rouge and there was a transition in the early 1990s to bring the country, they call it a triple transition from mm. a war to peace, supposedly from authoritarianism to democracy and from a command economy to a free market economy. So basically, I've been looking at the trajectory of neoliberalism in Cambodia and the rampant violence that's associated with that. But it's repeatedly the state in that context who is facilitating and by and large, uh engaging that violence against its own population so you know at the time this this was during my master's research Mm -hmm. and probably the early part of my phd when people still used to go to the library and actually go to the section on violence and just have a browse of what the spines would say on the books uh it's not a you know it's not a process we engage that that much anymore but i think it's a a beautiful process because the serendipity is there and what happened for me is i saw on the spine of a book i saw tolstoy government is violence mm. and i thought that really resonated with what was going on in cambodia just the title itself i thought tolstoy okay well i know him as an author of various large novels like war and peace yeah. but i didn't really know that he was a philosopher so i got that book out and it was a basically a compilation or collection of his um philosophical writing. And, you know, Tolstoy today is called the pacifist anarchist, and he never really uh, – we started this conversation by kind of saying, what's in a word, what's an anarchist? And Tolstoy rejected that label mm-hmm. of being an anarchist, but uh f- for – For his own particular reasons, but fundamentally, he was working with anarchist theory and and deeply inspired by anarchist thinkers. And it was through serendipity of finding that book that, you know, made me discover Kropotkin and Reclue and um, enabled me to see, again, the the kind of blinders that were being uh, affected within the larger context of political geography at the time which wasn't making sense for the kind of work that I was doing where the state was, the, you know, the key actor and the key, you know, a agent of culpability, if you will, in terms of the violence that was being expressed in that country. And also, you know, anarchism for me uh made immediate sense because while I deeply appreciated Marxist critiques of capitalism, Mm. I couldn't parse that with, um, the historical experience in Cambodia of taking on Marxism and having it, you know, explode into a genocide. Right. Um, so there was only so much of Marxist theory that I was willing to accept and anarchism, you know, was expressing similar ideas but without that reliance on the state and and this insistence that the state can be emancipatory so yeah that was kind of my trajectory into it and and my feeling was that um you know this has to go deeper than cambodia of course cambodia has its own contextual specificity but uh You know, growing up in Canada and and thinking through the kind of colonial violence that was meted out both in the past and continues to be affected into the present by the Canadian Mm -hmm. state, it, you know, made sense in that context too, to think of how an anarchist praxis would, um, influence not only my thought on things, but potentially, if it was taken up, be a, a potential agent for more radical change and, No, I mean, I'm not somebody who's done, uh, I I can't speak for indigenous peoples, and I haven't done a lot of work on indigenous geographies by any stretch of the imagination. But uh, what I think is interesting is the resonances then between anarchist theory and some of the indigenous resistance movements that are arising in Canada. And I don't want anarchism to co-opt and say those are you know anarchist movements because they're their own movements they have their own identity but i think that anarchists uh anarchists in general and anarchist theory and anarchist praxis can be um allied to that um you know that kind of emancipatory movement without again without co-opting it and claiming it as anarchist Yeah,
0: like running parallel to it in some way yeah yeah and,
1: and support in support and and you know the uh engaging the necessary humility to allow indigenous communities to lead themselves right to guide to make their own decisions uh, with their own autonomy and decide for themselves what the trajectory of their f- future is going to look like Whereas, you know, I don't see that kind of capability within a Marxist sort of praxis, because it's so fundamentally connected to the idea of a, you know, of a vanguard and of uh, the revolutionary agent mm. of the world being, you know, the worker and this, you know, in the time that Marx was writing, yeah, that made sense. But yeah, the world's a lot more messy today than it was back then, right? And I no longer think that the worker is the key agent of revolutionary change. I think that's who is the key agent of revolutionary change that's very diverse yeah. and and diffused across space, right? And as a geographer, I'm forced to think in this way, if you will, um, that we can't universalize the experience of the worker in you know, the late um, 1800s in Europe for the experience that we're seeing around the world today.
0: Yeah, because uh, there's so many things I want to pick on now, but just on the point of Marxism, also my problem is what does it mean even to be a worker today? I think that's not as simple as someone who's turning a screw in a factory or beating on a metal bar in a factory that even work itself has become you know, much more precarious, much more diverse. So,
1: yeah, yeah. And it's I mean, and it's not to say that, that the work that the worker, whatever that means today, isn't also an agent of revolutionary change, but we have to diversify the way that we're looking at this and not try to uh, pigeonhole everything into a little box. And of course, you know, not all Marxists want to do that, but I think, uh, you know, the very kind of uh, true blue Marxists, if you will, like David Harvey, they continue to want to engage Marx in a very old school letter of the law sort of way. Whereas, you know, for me, I, I think there's something worthwhile in autonomous Marxism. And my curiosity then is why they continue to call it Marxism at all when it's so closely paralleled to what, you know, anarchism has become today. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of, uh, I think this is just, you know, the nature of academia and the way that it's unfolded is there's so much emphasis and weight one placed on particular ideologies, but also on particular authors and whether that's Marx or Foucault or whoever it might be. Um, Again, to go back to something I said earlier, like, you know, I put my name on my books, but am I really the author? And the same thing for Marx or Foucault or whoever we're talking about, Um, we lionize these particular individuals when really we shouldn't. We should be thinking of them as you know, one thinker within a general milieu of ideas that Mm. were being explored at the time. And all of their ideas were built upon the ideas of others and Mm. so on and so forth. That there is no, there is no flashpoint of genius, if you will, that we're either we're all geniuses or none of us are kind of thing. And that I think goes with an anarchist praxis that, you know, no single person is any better than anyone else. And, um, we're all in this together.
0: So I want to try and bring some of the things that you've already mentioned now. So this might get a bit complicated. I want to try and weave different points together. But we, we spoke about yeah a resurgence in anarchist thought. Then also you were saying that you don't understand why people keep coming back to the state. Because you, as you said, it, it's often just... The cause of a lot of the violence. And I think this is just maybe my own pet theory or observation that one possible explanation for a resurgence of anarchism could be at least, okay, for me, this has been a big reason why I've turned to it is because of the threat of climate, the climate crisis. You know, it's something when I wake up in the morning, I think about the climate. And um, my Field is an international law, so that's very much based on the idea that states can do something about the climate crisis. Mm -hmm. Where it's becoming apparent to me that the whole problem—you're trying to fix a problem with the thing that caused it—and this is where I eventually had to veer away from Marxism, even if we're talking about work and labor to what extent that is complicit in Mm -hmm. climate change with the state apparatus itself so what do you see you haven't mentioned the climate crisis yet but Mm -hmm. maybe all the themes around this so far so do you have a, a view on this
1: no i think i mean i think you're exactly right that it's like so many issues in the world, it's trying to use the very thing that created it to to fix it. And certainly, that's the case mm-hmm. with with climate change. I mean, the the biggest sort of implications in in what's transforming our cl- climate is the reliance on fossil fuels and the um, the kind of agriculture that we're doing. that's, you know, usually, Large-scale monocrops, but uh, uh, also supporting, you know, the the production of meat and cutting down forests and using all kinds of resources into that that particular uh, mode of feeding ourselves. But yeah, I mean, it's fundamentally the state who props up these industries, right? It's it supports them in various ways, it subsidizes them, it allows them to manipulate the playing field in uh ways that you know suit their interests but don't suit the interests of the the constituent that they're supposedly responsible for right and this is the way i mean this is you know goes back to what Kropotkin said about capitalism and the state that it's impossible to tease them apart that you know they developed in concert with each other and they continue to march hand in hand if you will and you know, as you, and I think this is the thing that neoliberals don't get as well. I mean, Marxists, on the one side, Marxists want to use the state and eradicate capitalism. And on the other side, neoliberals want to use capitalism and eradicate Mm -hmm. the state in that process. But they don't fundamentally realize that it is the state that continues to prop up the, the market mechanisms that they so cherish, right? And yeah. I mean, when it comes to climate change, governments just, we've had enough years and enough science done to, to suggest there is an overarching problem. But then you have Trump, people like Trump saying, uh, there's no issue here whatsoever. Right. And it's the, I mean, it's the fundamental problem with the contemporary version of democracy, which to me isn't democracy at all. It's elect, you know, it's electoral authoritarianism, if you will, that you elect a government and as soon as they're elected, they're no longer responsible to you until they're trying to get themselves elected again. And it's just a system that doesn't work. I mean, in some ways, at least raw authoritarianism is more honest because you know what you're dealing with rather than this uh, huge set of smoke and mirrors around what's actually going on, right? But Yeah, I mean, I don't think governments are going to fundamentally change anything. And so long as we have this, you know, global system that's fundamentally uh, interested in maintaining uh, the motivations of profit, we're not going to see any significant changes. What I think about that then is um, that that an anarchist future is nonetheless assured, And it's assured for one of two reasons, either we're going to transform our systems in such a way that it is, you know, radically democratic in the sense, you know, in the anarchist sense of everybody being responsible for each other and working together and uh, figuring out systems at a local level and using networks of connection rather than hierarchical organization to Uh, address these Mm. kinds of issues or we're going to see you know civilization as we know it go off a cliff and in the aftermath of you know that disaster of everything breaking apart the only you know if humans survive at all what we're going to be left with is people organizing on the small scale and having to engage in mutual aid to to actually you know make life livable so as far as anarchism goes i'm I connect this at a more existential level as well that I, I I, think fundamentally the universe is organized along anarchist principles in the sense that, you know, there is this connectivity and, and this, this beauty to it as well. I mean, in my book, The Anarchist Roots of Geography, I talk about the connection between beauty and anarchism and, and, and how these ideas, yeah, that's the one, how yeah. these ideas come together and i mean i think at a at a sort of uh, existential level i think that the universe moves us in that direction right if we think of the the production of life itself you know and kropotkin laid this all out it's all reliant on each other right and so what human beings have done is essentially engage a system of arrogance and and ego where We've tried to disconnect ourselves from that. And by trying to disconnect, you know, capitalism and the state being the, the key mechanisms of that. But through that kind of disconnection, we've disrupted a system that wants to bring itself back to equilibrium. So if humans are to vo- survive as a, as a species, we need to humble ourselves and realize we need to live within the parameters of the environment and the biosphere, which you know hosts us and give us gives us life and which we are fundamentally connected to rather than continuing to push this uh, well effectively a eurocentric idea about the separation of of humans from the world man against nature if you will right that this is you know it's one of the most problematic ideas i think that we've ever developed because it it, it just really well, it it set us on the path that we're on today, that um, nature is something to be conquered and and submitted to our will. And we are a, a tiny blip in the larger context, both of the world, but the universe at large. But, you know, within the context of our own biosphere, we, we've now encapsulated it in such a way that it looks like a human world, if you will, but uh, there's other scales of analysis which, w- with which we could look at that equation, whether it's at the level of bacteria or viruses or, or even ants, you know, the biomass of ants is much larger than the biomass of humans all put together sort of thing. So we are still just a small part of this. And if we don't learn to play nice, I mean, as with any species, the system will correct itself and, and move us out, right? So. We either learn to adapt, and and for me that means adapting by uh, engaging in the anarchist idea of connectivity and mutual aid once more, or you know we face our own extinction.
0: So you say that anarchism is inevitable if it's not if we don't decide it, it's going to happen through societal collapse. But just yesterday I was rereading the newest little book by Bruno Latour where he says it's clear to him that the mm-hmm. I can't remember the word he uses but let's say the elites or the 1% or whatever says Americans and and Brits have made the conscious decision of saying we don't share the planet with the rest of the world anymore. He says it's not a shared space anymore and we're talking about two two worlds and one not one half like let's say 1% of those two worlds has said that to hell with the rest of you we're taking care of ourselves and then i hear stories about uh very rich people buying up properties in new zealand to turn that into a kind of uh (laughs) i don't know like a a kind of mothership of uh resources (laughs) so i suppose my question is and where i might uh differ from you is you see a kind of natural balance being restored, where for me, I see this crisis as really continuing like this logic, keeping repeating itself and really exacerbating these asymmetries.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I I, I don't think we're on the, I don't think we're correcting quite yet. What I'm saying is Mm -hmm. if we don't change, like there's, There's only so much of this that the planet can take, right? We know that that there's a carrying capacity to the earth. And if we go over that limit, and we're already over it, but if we go over it to an extent where it's no longer able to sustain human life, well, there's going to be this massive collapse or no longer able to sustain even the the systems that we've produced, right? Yeah, I mean, as you said, we see these rich elites creating, you know, doomsday properties if you will to protect themselves and certainly I agree that the world has been enclosed in all sorts of ways where it's very difficult to think of free spaces that have not been captured and uh, capitalized upon either by the state or individual actors and I mean
0: to interrupt you but you might Elon Musk trying to uh, take it outside of the planet
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. This, yeah. I mean, this, I mean, it's perverse, isn't it? Right. This idea that, uh, and you even have top scientists saying, okay, we better start colonizing other worlds because, or else face our own extinction. And for me, it's like, even this ridiculous sort of uh, question about extraterrestrials and that sort of thing. I mean, to me, that's all nonsense because not that I don't think there's other life on other planets. I think there probably is, but that life is intelligent enough to realize that the best way forward is not to think of how am I going to colonize other places, right? It's about living within the context of that own biosphere. And humans are exceptional in their idea of thinking they can transcend the bios, you know, the biosphere from which they, they were produced. But, um, what I'm, tr- what I'm trying to say is that I think that um, th- this trajectory that we're on, there's only so much that the planet is going to take, either in terms of our planetary systems, right, that they're going to start collapsing, and whether that's, you know, the, the atmosphere being able to support life or uh, enough water for us to drink, enough non-polluted water, all these sorts of things transformations in weather, being able to grow crops, all that kind of stuff or and probably in concert with that enough human beings saying enough is enough and overthrowing the system. So, yeah, there's going to be a lot of bloodshed probably in that process of revolt because the state is now so powerful with, you know, it has weapons that can destroy all of us, you know, in the touch of a button sort of thing. So, Hopefully it doesn't come to that, but I think, you know, before it gets better and before we return to equilibrium, it's still going to get a whole lot worse, right? But in the long march of history, right, on a geological timescale, human beings are infinitesimally small, right? That we are, you know, we've been here for the blink of an eye and we just don't seem to recognize that, right? That that the fragility of human existence uh, because it's so fundamentally reliant on this planet and this planet, people say, the, talk about the world ending, ending, the world isn't going anywhere. The world's just going to be just fine. You know, once, if we destroy ourselves through nuclear war or whatever, eventually the plants are going to regrow and different species will come back. I mean, it's, The question that I think anarchism is wanting to ask is, whatever that future might be, do we want human beings to be a part of it? And it's this sort of radical idea that wouldn't it be nice if humans could exist in such a way where we be continue to be part of this planetary landscape for as long as possible? Whereas the capitalist sort of trajectory is, Mm -hmm. I'm going to gobble up as much as I can in my lifetime and to hell with everyone else who comes uh, after me, right? So it's this profound Mm -hmm. intergenerational violence that's being affected as well that nobody seems to want to talk about either, right? You know, I guess we do a little bit in the context of, oh, if we don't fix our climate, there's going to be nothing for our children, nothing left for our children and many people are perhaps thinking along those lines but they're not not making the distinct connection to uh, capitalism and consequently the state as well Mm. in you know producing that dire future for for our children
0: so if we get to a point where an anarchist arrangement becomes inevitable how do you see us moving beyond a kind of so what's really popular and you see this in almost every text these days is uh you know karl schmidt being mentioned and the friend enemy distinction and you know the that at the end of the day violence is always going to be the last arbiter how can we respond to that challenge from if we're talking about a society of mutual aid or reciprocity do you think it's within our nature to overcome the friend enemy distinction
1: yeah i mean the, the question of human nature that's that's kind of the the big the big question if you will between capitalists and anarchists and marxists and and any different sort of ideological perspective on the world and i mean in the past folks like Kropotkin and they insisted that human nature was fundamentally good and capable of mm. uh, doing good things and for me, I think in the course of, of my trajectory through academia, I've been influenced by post structuralist thought. I mean, I don't agree with Kropotkin in the sense that human nature is fundamentally good, but I don't agree with capitalists in the idea that, uh, qu- you know, quote unquote, human nature is fundamentally bad and we have to take for ourselves and that kind of thing. And I mean, that's the state logic as well in terms of the prison system and, and punishing people, people are fundamentally bad. For me, it's more... Yeah, a, and
0: the war of all against all.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: That the state has to solve, yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. For me, it's more about potentiality. I mean, humans have the capacity to g- do good and they also have the capacity to do evil, whatever those two things mean in any given context. And it's about the choices that we make. But in terms, you know, I don't know how the future is going to unfold. And it's not for me to sort of dictate or decide how people should organize for change. I mean, those things are already happening, right? People are doing Mm -hmm. it in their own particular ways. But I I think the question is as well, if we're going to look at this in terms of capabilities, we're already doing a lot of the things we need to be doing, Mm -hmm. right? If we think of how we treat our families and our circle of friends, we fundamentally already engage not in systems of capitalism. Like you know, anytime I uh, wash the dishes or, or mow the lawn or vice versa, my kids do that or my partner does that or whatever. There's not a money exchange. We do that as a as a mutual support mm-hmm. because it helps our our little collective, right? broaden that out into your circle of friends i mean you do all kinds of favors and and are willing to to help your friends in you know whatever capacity you can because you care about them and so to me it's we're already doing these things and how do we extend that circle of care is kind of the question right and Mm. there's a lot of folks who are who are trying to answer that in various ways right And you know, creating community childcare co-ops or uh, carpooling systems or community gardens or, you know, there's, there's all kinds of cooperative ways that we can engage with each other. Um, community tool sheds, lots of different things that people are doing at an everyday sort of scale. And I think fundamentally that's where the change is going to come from. Can that be big enough to overthrow this violent system? probably not that just alone i think we're going to come to a point of distinct confrontation and i think you're right that the question of climate change is going to be the thing that pushes us for either this entirely dystopian world where it's a a matrix like scenario that we're all under the heel of like very much under the heel of a global oppressive regime or things are going to change, you know, for the better once people, enough people start to push back. And we've start to see hints of the potentiality of this. Um, you know, I have a lot of problems with the way that the Extinction Rebellion movement has been organized as a sort of vanguard uh, kind of movement, but it nonetheless hints at the potential of Radical ideas being globalized, right? I mean, this is a movement that didn't exist two years ago. If you asked anyone what this movement is, nobody would, would know. But it's been able to plug in to a certain level of, of people's consciousness who formerly might not have been radicalized in any capacity. To think about climate change different and to want to do different things so i mean next week here in newcastle we have a, a student strike against climate change for example and i mean when i was growing up you know that this wouldn't happen in my school uh, there was no you know organized student strikes or anything like that so yeah i mean it, extinction rebellion it has its organizational problems and, and that sort of thing but it Hints at a, you know, a broader uh, willingness to change, if you will. The same thing with Occupy movement. Uh, people talk about that being, you know, unsuccessful. Well, it fired the global imagination in the time that it existed and it showed us the kind of networking and organizing that could become possible. So these aren't the movements that have, will obviously well, Extinction Rebellion, that story is yet to be completely ri- written. But in terms of the Occupy movement, it wasn't the movement that changed the world mm-hmm. in the dramatic sense that people were hoping for. But it was the seed of something new that's coming. Right. And uh, that's going to happen on this pathway. We're going to see these mm-hmm. seeds sprout up and they're going to grow a little bit. But each one is going to grow bigger and bigger. And eventually, I think, you know, I I have to be optimistic as well, because I have three children, like, I'm hopeful that there is a future for us to live into. So I don't want to allow my own thinking to descend into nihilism and Mm. suggest that, you know, this is the end times that we're living in, even though, there's moments where I slip into that kind of thought, right? That this is, maybe this is the end for humanity, right? Maybe, maybe we are seeing our final days, but I want to stay on the side of hope because I have three children and I want them to, to have the experiences that I've had, to live a full and and happy life. And, you know, not just selfishly my children, but all children in the world, right? That, um, you know, why Why should we be the last humans? Why should we be allowed to exploit this world in such a way that um, those who come after us don't get to enjoy life in the same way that, or in better ways, perhaps, than, than we have? So, yeah, it's that question of uh, recognizing the intergenerational violence that's going on. And I think the hope is, is that a lot of young people are, right? If we see these... If we see children organizing uh, school strikes and that sort of thing, I mean, you know, if it's getting to that level of consciousness, we know something's desperately wrong and we know that, you know, things are necessarily going to have to shift.
0: Yeah, I think on the point of intergenerational violence, even on a much smaller scale, I feel like especially people my age, for many of my friends and I and of course that's just a section of it it's not even most but definitely some of us we graduated from university just like a year or something after the financial crisis 10 years ago and where Mm -hmm. our friends who were two or three years older were all all graduated out of bachelor's programs straight into jobs we suddenly had no one was getting employed Mm and for me that I, I definitely understood that in a kind of intergenerational way. I I felt kind of betrayed by, you know, by the adults.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, you know, the baby boomer generation is the, the generation where we can identify, you know, the world was their oyster, right? You didn't need to go to university. You came out of high school and there were multiple jobs that, that you could have and the the kind of, Discourse that's being produced about millennials today and, and how, you know, they're not hardworking and this sort of thing. I mean, it's completely apples and oranges in terms of where the world economy is today and, and the potential for young people to actually make a life for themselves. And what I think what's the good that's come out of that is that people are no longer thinking that a good life means a big house and two cars and maybe a cabin at the lake or some, you know, it's not a it's not as materialistic as it was in the past, right? People are thinking along different terms and encouraging people to think about life more as connection to others rather than what you can accumulate for yourself. So there's, you know, one positive that's come out of it. But then, yeah, nonetheless, there's a lot of Bile that's being spewed towards young people today as though it's their fault without reflecting and recognizing that the world that young people inherited was created, was not of their creation. It was created by the generations that came before them. And yeah, I think that um, it's been said many times before, but youth will be the key agent of change in, in the future that we're going to see. And it's a matter of keeping those radical politics, you know, if if young people can be radicalized at that point in their in their life, keeping that capacity for radicalism throughout the course of their life. And, you know, of course we saw the counterculture movement in the 1960s among the baby boomers, right? Where they, you know, they were the hippie generation. They were the ones who were going to change the world, but then they all became, you know, highly consumeristic to an extent not seen yet in human history. Mm -hmm. Right. And the question of today is, you know, it's that old guard that's accumulated most of everything. So the young people are being radicalized today, the new hippies, if you will, they're not going to have the opportunity to fall back on consumerism in the same way that the baby boomer generation did. So I think that radicalism is going to stick with them through their whole lives. And, you know, maybe this is then the generation where real change is going to take place.
0: Yeah, thanks. I have many, many more questions, but it feels like that's a really good, uh, like a good full stop at the end of the sentence. But <laughs> you, I know you have a new book coming out. I'm specifically, I think you have several new books coming out.
1: Yeah, there's a few in the works. I mean, uh, the one I just announced yesterday, PM Press is doing, um, a book version of fuck neoliberalism. And it's basic. The subtitle is translating resistance. So the idea was it's been translated into, I think it's 21 languages. It's over 20 languages that it's been translated into, you know, by various academics and activists around the world who, saw the resonance of of that uh, that essay within within their own context. So basically it's a compilation of those translated essays and some reflections from the translators themselves as to why it's how and why this pushback against neoliberalism mm-hmm. is relevant in their own context. And then there's a um, I, I've written a new introduction as well, just kind of reflecting on, what happened with that, uh, that? I mean, that essay went viral a couple of years ago and it was all kind of an interesting case of questions questions about academic freedom. Um, yeah, so it's a, a compilation of those essays. Um, the other books that I've got coming out currently working on, it was meant to be four books on anarchist political ecology, but we've kind of reduced it to three. Two of them are ready to go. The third volume, we're still putting the finishing touches on, and then um, we've been talking with uh, a publisher about that, but we haven't signed you know, any kind of agreements as of yet. So I was hoping that project would already be finalized, but it's been moving a little bit slower, but it's still...
0: The, the thing is, I'm in the final phases of handing in my thesis, yeah. and I, I saw those books and I really yeah. want to read them before I have ten, and especially <laughs> just from the title I'm guessing uh I think it was it volume 3 about specifically the state
1: energies beyond the state yeah
0: yeah so I really I I mean it's I think it's not I'm not going to be able to uh read them in time but yeah
1: I mean the pu- the publication schedule is so slow I mean the book I just announced You know, I was able to announce it today because it's up on PM Press's website, Mm -hmm. but it's not being released till June of next Mm -hmm. year. So, you know, these anarchist political apology books, I imagine the earliest they're going to see the light of day now in, in their final form is 2021, just because, yeah, the publication schedule of any given publisher is, you know, they need a lot of lead time to not only print the book and get it ready, but to do whatever marketing they're going to do and promotion and that sort of thing. So I think we're looking at a 2021 release for those. The other project I'm working on is vegan geographies. There's two volumes of those again, probably 2021. They'll see the, the light of day. Uh, those books. I mean, it's, it's trying to come at veganism from a very non-consumerist Non lifestyle veganism perspective, right? It's really trying to inject that radical current back into veganism that it shouldn't just be about, oh, hey, you know, McDonald's is making a vegan burger now. That's wonderful sort of thing. It's like, no, Mm -hmm. fuck McDonald's. We should be thinking about veganism in, you know, along an anarchist sort of lines, if you will. And then the other project uh, that I've got in the works is, um, With Federico Ferretti, Richard White, and Marcelo Lopez de Souza, Insurgent Geographies, which is another, you know, exploration of uh, anarchist geographies and trying to, trying to, you know, cover the full breadth. I mean, uh, for example, Federico works from a very kind of historical perspective, whereas for myself, I think more about, you know, the current issues that are going on and it's trying to give a full breadth sort of look at, you know, what anarchist geographies and insurgent geographies are all about. Um, and that one's meant we're kind of pitching it at a level where it's, you know, we think it'll be still valuable to folks who are deeply engaged in that literature, but it's kind of like, uh, uh, almost like an introduction. If you don't know anything about anarchist geographies or anarchist theory, here's a way to get your feet wet. Um, Uh, an easy sort of conduit to enter into that and then explore other avenues. And that one will probably be 2021 as well. So 2021 should be a big year.
0: (laughs) Hopefully uh, we can talk again in 2021. Yeah. And also I have to compliment you on the, the artwork for your various books and especially the Anarchist Political Ecology series. The artwork is really amazing for the covers yeah
1: yeah thanks I mean for me I love this is you know that's half the fun if it's got a really standout awesome piece of artwork mm. on the front of it people are going to want to read that book and and want to you know have it in their hands and experience it so the guy that did the um, the anarchist political ecology he's his name is Timur and he he lives in Russia and I don't think his work was, Really that widely known. He's been, he's done a few metal covers for, for metal bands. Um, but certainly he's never done like an academic book or anything, but I'm kind of hoping that, you know, with these books that people will recognize his art and, and ask him to do more projects. Right. Because yeah, I love putting great artwork. I mean, that's kind of my my whole approach moving forward any book i publish in the future i I don't want to publish it unless it's got some great artwork on the cover so
0: yeah yeah that's awesome yeah so i don't want to uh take up any more of your time so
1: yeah and hopefully we'll talk soon
0: yeah thank you very much
1: awesome okay thanks
0: again